Good evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air. And we have uh, another round of interesting information to discuss regarding Michael Schumacher's The Sinking of the Edmund, Edmund Fitzgerald, or I should say The Mighty Fitz. We're going to be talking about uh, the Marine Board's uh, inquiry, that is, uh, the testimony given to, um, I would say, testimony where close to 50 witnesses came uh, forward to share uh, what they had known about the Fitzgerald from years past, including a fellow by the name of Captain Bernie Cooper from the Arthur Anderson, who has been mentioned very regularly. So on the day of November 20th, 1975, Captain Bernie Cooper began his testimony to the Marine Board. That was the first day that the Marine Board itself began its inquiry into what they thought was responsible for the sinking of the Fitzgerald. Captain Cooper himself really was the one individual who could provide the board with um, all sorts of uh, clues about how the Fitzgerald herself went down. Captain Cooper really was the only one that had extensive contact with the Fitzgerald throughout the storm up until it went out of sight from his radar. And it's very safe to say that Captain Cooper is a very experienced captain. He is very knowledgeable about the, about Great Lakes vessels, storms, to how ships perform under stress. Well, when you think about it, if you have nearly 40 years of experience out on the Great Lakes, you ought to be bound to know by now just how well any vessel can perform in the most um, unforeseeable of weather circumstances, and he can relate to it because he just went through it himself. Now, Captain Cooper's testimony is very detailed, meaning that he has lots of information to share about any given point that will be um, addressed, but he's also elusive. In other words, He'll tell what's necessary, but at the same time, it might be hard to get him to crack on other key pertinent information. He was very hesitant in moving away from the actual facts. He had to be persuaded in doing the opposite. An example of this scenario is where the Marine Board questioned the Fitzgerald's movements around Mishapikaton and Caribou Islands, which included presenting a tape, a recorded tape conversation of Bernie Cooper's conference call with U.S. Steel being the office in Cleveland. In that conversation, Captain Cooper uh, said to uh, U.S. Steel that the Fitzgerald herself had steered too close to a dangerous, to dangerous shoals between uh, Mishapikaton and Caribou Islands. Now, Captain Cooper's testimony about the Fitzgerald's course, that is, the route she took near Caribou Island, revolved around assumptions based on 
the Fitzgerald's proximity, meaning it's a distance to the Six Fathom Shoal area where she probably struck aground. The conference call with U.S. Steel, in which Bernie Cooper was involved in, Cooper himself was, in fact, under a great deal of stress. He admitted that whatever movements Captain Mc Ernest McSorley made around the Six Fathom Shoal were theoretical guesses versus factual evidence. And as I had said uh, from last night's podcast, Captain Cooper did mention in this phone call to U.S. Steel that he was convinced that Captain Ernest McSorley did strike a shoal and it and not just struck a shoal, but that by his means of navigation into that area led him to go off track into the shoal. And as, and as I said also from last night, it's one thing to question something about another captain's um, judgment, but it's also a cardinal violation or a, an, es uh, an essential um what do you call it? He broke a cardinal rule by um, by steering off course and addressing another captain's moves without proper. Um, how do you call it? He said a little bit too much that was on his mind, but at the same time, given just how much uh, pressure Captain Cooper was under, knowing what he himself had gone through the night before, or the night of November 10th, I should say, you know, he had been, um, he had had no sleep for 48 hours, so when you haven't had sleep for 48 hours, you're probably going to say things that could be taken out of context. It's, to some degree, it's not a bad thing, but it all just depends on the situation at hand. So, Captain Cooper truly felt that his comments regarding McSorley, Captain Ernest McSorley's um, navigation actions were taken out of context due to the amount of pressure revolving around the Fitzgerald sinking. And I do believe he has a point there. Captain Cooper did perform well with less under less pressure when it came to matters like weather and how quick or unpredictable the conditions could change on, on the Great Lakes. Well, here's an obvious answer, but did the Arthur M. Anderson, pardon me, people, <laughs> not trying to fall asleep just yet, but hang in there, we will get through this. Did the Arthur M. Anderson do well, given how bad the storm itself was? Uh, the answer is yes. She did suffer some damage, but very minimal, to say the least. When did uh, Captain Cooper's concerns become significant with regards to um, impacts that uh, Captain Ernest McSorley and his crew of the Fitzgerald endured? Captain Cooper's concerns grew when Captain McSorley revealed to him that he had a fence rail down. But in Captain Cooper's eyes, he knew deep down that the likelihood of the Fitzgeralds having hit a shoal had indeed happened despite not having concrete proof.
you know, as I had mentioned from a previous podcast, and Captain Cooper is right about this, a fence rail just doesn't fall off on its own. I think it's fair to say that once uh, Captain McSorley had hit the shoal, and then you have a wave, or I should say a rogue wave, come by and knock the fence rail off, that's just the beginning of the inevitable. For Captain Bernie Cooper, he believed in this up until his dying days that the Fitzgerald, in fact, had either touched bottom or hogged in rough seas between Mishapikaton and Caribou Islands. The damage to the Fitzgerald's hull had, in fact, allowed for a high volume of water to enter in and lose distance between the waterline and spar deck to falling victim to one or more dangerous waves, or I should say large rogue waves. Captain Cooper advised the board that the overall answers could be found by visiting the wreckage site. Well, I do believe Captain Cooper himself has made some very, very valuable uh, statements do I truly believe he broke a cardinal rule? I don't believe he did, even though, yes, he may have said some things that were taken out of context, but but when you consider how far he had gone above and beyond to stick with uh, Captain Ernest McSorley and her crew for the entire time they were alive until their ship went out of sight, I could see how, I could see just how easily it would take for one to get off track and say something out of context without any harmful intention. A lot was at stake on this night, trying to beat out a storm, but knowing how quick the loss of life occurred to all 29 men aboard the Edmund Fitzgerald. And I do believe that she probably did... um, touch bottom, or let alone hogged in rough seas, that is, where her bow and stern were um, were uneven to where she was, um, you know, just taking on too much of everything. You know, yes, you hit the, the uh, shoal and all that water comes through, which causes, uh, obviously, the bow and the stern to become uneven, and the in the middle to um, become um, less buoyant, the ship itself is fighting for its dear life. So I do believe what Bernie Cooper not only is feeling inside, but what he now agrees upon that the Fitzgerald had in fact touched bottom or hogged in rough seas, and was taking on so much not just water but everything else that was going to be damaged in a matter of minutes, it's all very likely that that this very well had happened. Of course, there, were, there weren't any witnesses, but when you consider just how rough the sea was or the waters were on that night of November 10th, 1975, anything could have um, occurred that resulted in, that would have resulted in the loss of life in a short amount of time even to a 730-foot freighter. The loading uh, process for how these ships get loaded 
based on the board's inquiry, there were no issues that the board was able to find that would have um, that would have raised a red flag as to the Fitzgerald, whether or not the Fitzgerald had been loaded properly, that is her cargo being properly loaded down in the chutes. Uh, However, issues with the hatch covers had raised major concerns, or concerns, I should say, regarding the replacing and fastening procedures. All right, here's an example. Some witnesses said it wasn't uncommon for crews to fasten down half of the hatch cover clamps, especially in the summer when weather was good and minimal danger on the lakes. I'm not sure even if covering just covering half of them wouldn't have guaranteed uh, complete safety even in the summer. But this is what happened. Um, now, in the opposite, being in the winter or late fall in the winter, um, I, I don't believe that this should have been something that should have gone on. The clamps themselves were a very unpredictable uh, matter, especially with how crews went about repairing them before and after departure. If the weather changed during a trip, the crew itself would have to be responsible to fasten down those clamps not already done so. This whole process could have been could be done within a 20-minute span by three to four men. However, if the weather had changed for the worse, it would have been difficult to fasten any other clamps not already tended to. So could the Fitz, could the crew on the Fitzgerald have um, tended to any clamps that may have been um, not uh, already clamped down prior to 7 o'clock? Yes and no. I'd probably have to say on the... I would have to probably favor more of no than yes. And I say more so for the no part because visibility was already 2 to 4 miles. And the wind gusts had already picked up to about 60 miles an hour and in some cases depending on where the ship was around the eastern edge of Lake Superior uh, the wind gusts had exceeded 90 miles an hour so I don't believe it would have been a good idea to be out there trying to fix something um, as some people would say oh that ha that hatch clamp or that hatch cover could be replaced your life can't well that's a good point but at the same time You've got to also ensure that the safety of your crew comes first. So to answer the question again, I don't believe that, the, that no matter how um, quick people could have gotten out there to have fixed any hatch or any clamp that was not already properly um, secured, who's to say that any of those men could have been uh, thrown overboard by the... Um, by just how s severe the, the wind gusts were. Basically, no matter what modifications were made, I do believe in the end that Mother Nature probably still would have prevailed when all this was said and done with. Here's another uh, good bonus question to think about. 
Is it difficult to launch lifeboats under extreme weather conditions? I would say absolutely yes. It's one thing to conduct a lifeboat drill on a nice sunny day during the summer, but the exact opposite, especially come winter time, but not just in winter, but when a ship itself is going down and you don't have a whole lot of time to even evacuate, the chances of even doing a, um, a launch lifeboat drill or just any kind of drill in general is very, very uh, slim. Every witness, I should note this here, that every witness who came before the Marine Board did agree that it would have been virtually impossible to launch lifeboats given how quickly the Fitzgerald herself sank. And it also should be pointed out that during the board inquiry, or the Marine Board inquiry for that matter, multiple crewmen who had been on the Fitzgerald from years past had testified with differing views on the launching of lifeboats in the midst of crisis. However, each of these men agreed that the crew would not have stood a chance of survival out in the open waters given how rough the weather itself was, and that's very true. Sure, you could launch a lifeboat successfully even in the midst of uh, terrifying weather, but who's Who's not to say that a 60-mile-an-hour wind or wind of 60 miles an hour with gusts occasionally going at 90 miles an hour wouldn't have thrown the crew right off a lifeboat? And who's to say that they would not have had enough time to have even put a life jacket on? So the bottom line is this. You think you have time to do all this stuff, but when you have rogue waves coming at you so quickly... It's very easy to get knocked off track and just to be able to get back up and get ready to do what it is that you need to do. Time's not on your side. Sadly, that was the case of what happened with the 29 men on the Fitzgerald. They just didn't have enough time on their side to know what hit so quickly to where they could get back up and um, and be prepared for what lied ahead. Sadly, their fate came very quick, and obviously, as I've mentioned from previous podcasts, or podcasts for that matter, no mayday, no distress signals were were ever able to be um, performed because of how quick everything happened. Now, on December 13th of 1975, the Marine Board of Investigation uh, called its final witness. The panel interviewed 45 witnesses over 12 days of hearings. Testimony from all witnesses couldn't reach a thorough conclusion for the board to go by. In other words, the the board, the Marine Board, still was baffled by what they truly believed led to the Fitzgerald sinking. However, only one opinion to which everyone agreed upon, including the Marine Board, including for the members of the Marine Board themselves, was that the Fitzgerald sank so quickly to where nobody could plan an escape from the ship, nor let alone call out Mayday. And that is very true. Besides listening to testimony from nearly 45 witnesses, 
did the board pursue other outlets? Yes, the board, board members of the Marine Board had examined charts, maps, documents to photographs, which in the end would force the Marine Board to unanimously agree that the wreckage of the Fitzgerald had to be seen firsthand. How so? Well, in, in order to know what really caused this ship to sink, you're going to have to have some form of physical proof. So how are we going to go about getting physical proof? Well, one proposal was to have a team of divers go down. The only problem, though, is that when you've got a ship that's 530 feet below the surface of Lake Superior, how are you going to be so sure that those men going down are going to be safe? And once they are lowered down, are they going to be able to come back up safely? So, what would you all out there, being my 101 podcast listeners, what would you all say would be the safest approach or measure that the Marine Board, Marine Board felt would be necessary in uncovering the wreckage of the Fitzgerald? The answer is the following. Curve. Well, we're not talking about, you know, uh, we're not talking about curves in terms of like a curveball. We're talking about what's called a cable-controlled underwater research vehicle. It is an unmanned, and it, which being is which being that it's unmanned and maneuvered from surface by remote control. It's a device that would be lowered to the wreckage area where it could videotape objects directly, and or in front of it. It was also equipped with a 35 millimeter camera for close-up stills along with having claw-like robotic arm, along with having a claw-like robotic arm being capable of grasping to repositioning objects. Now the exploration with the curve being the cable-controlled underwater research vehicle would be conducted in the spring of 1976 when ice on eastern Lake Superior's end had melted and the weather itself would be suitable for the Coast Guard study. Well, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the, um, the Marine Board did get a lot of uh, valuable information from all 45 witnesses, but the only way they're going to really be able to know firsthand what truly did cause the wreckage even though they did not see, even though nobody was there to actually witness the ship sink. But by sending this curve vehicle down into um, the bottom of Lake Superior, being 530 feet below the surface, to see firsthand, hey, what really did cause the mighty Fitz to go down and leave without a sight? Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and I look forward to another podcast session here soon. But um, this has been a very unique uh, journey uh, with learning about this ship. There are a lot of um, maritime history buffs out there who are still intrigued about this ship. They are still intrigued to this day as to what they think might have caused the ship to sink.
I'm beginning to believe at this point now that based off of what I, sh I uh, shared with you all earlier, that it was a whole series of um, various um, assortments that caused the Fitzgerald to sink. I do strongly believe that she did hit a shoal, but as a result of hitting the shoal, she took on so much water from below that uh, multiple holes were punctured by the shoal, and it did cause her stern and bow to hog, or what I should say, uh, become uh, hogging or become hogged to where the ship no longer was buoyant. And not just buoyant, but then when you have these rogue waves 30 to 35 feet high, I believe that those waves themselves were the final straws that broke the camel's back for the Fitzgerald. But there are, there's still more to uncover as to what uh, really did cause the Fitzgerald to sink but per the board. And we're going to be learning here soon about a famous singer who is still alive today. He's from Canada. His name's Gordon Lightfoot. I've mentioned him uh, probably from another podcast. Um, but what's unique about Gordon Lightfoot is, number one, he's from Canada. Number two, he wrote a song in 1976 called The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald honoring the 29 men who lost their lives. And in that song, there's that famous line, does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? Gordon Lightfoot often said that November was the cruelest month. And how so? Because it would often make or break for those who survived or didn't uh, survive when being out on the Great Lakes one last time before the season ended. Well, thank you, and uh, stay safe, and I look forward to another podcast session here. Take care.